Well, this morning we are wrapping up uh, our seventh series as we've uh, seventh message or sermon in the Outward with the Mission series. Uh, we have talked about the Great Commission, Christ's command to go in all the world and make disciples. We've talked about 11 motivations to go outward with the mission, the power of the Holy Spirit. Monty spoke about in terms of what allows us to do what we do when we go outward with the mission. We've talked about the importance of prayer. Uh, we did Mercy Found, which is a very tangible expression of outward with the mission. What a beautiful morning that was. And then last week, Monty did the gift of story. We all have a story. And as we share our story, many times God gives us open doors to speak about him with other people. So this morning, we're going to talk about as we wrap up us taking the next right steps personally and corporately of creating a culture of evangelism in our church, a culture of going outward with the mission, where outward with the mission is just who we are, that it's in the DNA of this church, that it really does drive our public and private lives. It leaks out of us in the decisions we make personally and as a church body. In some ways, it becomes the air that we breathe. That is a biblical church. So as we talk about evangelism, let me just define it for us. Biblical evangelism can be defined as teaching the gospel with the aim or goal to persuade. And we know that the gospel is the good news message that leads to salvation and the biblical gospel answers really four of life's biggest questions. It says, who is God? It answers that question. Why are we a mess? <laughs> what did Christ do for us in our mess? And how can we get back to God through what Christ did? Those are the four big questions that it answers. And, and when we do healthy and biblical evangelism, we need to picture ourselves in some ways like trained counselors who are called upon to talk to people who are threatening suicide. The aim is to persuade them not to jump. They're on the ledge and the aim is to persuade them not to jump. And when you've seen those movies or you've seen um, news shows where someone was about to jump off a bridge or a building, those counselors, they don't use force. They don't lie. They use truthful hope and reason to persuade. You notice they stay calm and cool and kind because a life is at stake. So you'll never see them go, hey, Get the heck off that ledge, you idiot. Go ahead and jump. Nobody cares. You just, you just don't see that. They're talking to them because there's a lot at stake. One writer said, it's not that evangelism has been tried and found wanting. It's that evangelism has been found difficult and therefore left untried. But a church that has a healthy evangelism culture continues to work through this difficulty because there is so much at stake. An evangelism conversation 
As much as I love evangelism, as much as it is exhilarating, as much as it, the adrenaline flows in my body, I really do. It's like pre-game, pre-football game. You're in the locker room and you, right? This adrenaline, like, okay, here we go. I, I have to confess, a lot of those conversations are awkward but we must remember that the narrative is not about you and I being a genius. The narrative is that this person's life is at stake. I personally want you to know, just so it's clear, just so you don't walk away today and say, man, Jeff is crazy. He's challenging us to go to a Christmas party in a few weeks and stand up on a chair and share the gospel with everybody in the room. I'm not doing that. We simply want to help you have conversations about Christ that are very natural. Now, speaking of standing on a chair, has anyone else actually stood on a chair in a room full of people, of strangers, and shared the gospel? I actually got to do that. It was awesome. <laughs> so I, you want me to tell you the story? You want to hear it? Okay. So we're in Daytona Beach. I'm working with Clemson athletes, and I got about six guys with me, anywhere from 250 to about 320 pounds, 6'7", 6'6", 6'3", 250. I got some math, and we had one little swimmer with us. So we took care of him, right? I'm the smallest guy in the bunch besides the swimmer. And I've been, I've been discipling these guys for a couple years, and, um, and I... I, I I've been challenging them. We've been on the beach at Daytona sharing Christ. And so that's pretty challenging, right? These guys were knocking it out of the park. So they got wild. Look, they said, man, we need, it's our last night here. We need to do something crazy for Jesus. And I'm like, uh-oh, I think they, I think, I think I pushed these guys over the edge, right? I said, what are y'all thinking? And they were brainstorming. They looked up. Here's a hotel, and if you've ever been to Daytona Beach at spring break, it's debauchery in these hotel rooms at night. You got about 50 people. Everything you can think about is happening in that room. And they said, let's go in some rooms tonight and garner their attention and share Jesus. I said, man, these guys, I'm like, y'all crazy. Come on, man. You've been pushing us all week. Let's go. So we locked up. We prayed. Walk in a room, 60, 70 people, alcohol everywhere, loud music. I stand up on a chair and I say, excuse me, can I have your attention a minute? Sort of got quiet. I said, can you turn the music down? Now look, remember, I got about 1,800 pounds of meat behind me, right? <laughs> so I'm feeling bold. True story. They turned the music down. I said, my name's Jeff Patton. We're here with a group called Campus Crusade for Christ. They have some friends with me that would love to tell you their testimony of how they came to know Christ. You could hear a pin drop. Ty Granger steps forth, 6'7", 320 pounds, and he begins to give his testimony. And as he did, you just, <laughs> it was hilarious. Beer bottles got set down, <laughs> right? <clears throat> People stood. And I got my posse around me, right? African-American guys, white guys, and David, a little swimmer, standing over in the corner like, I hope they don't get me, right? <laughs> he gives his testimony. I stand on the share, chair, and I share the gospel, and I thank them for the time. We did that in three hotel rooms. The response was the same. They were respectful. 
They said, thanks for coming. And then they started getting autographs, all the guys, right? <laughs> I'm not asking you to do that, but it is fun. You ought to try it at least once before you die. And if sharing Christ with another person scares the bejeebies out of you, you are in great company. I listened to John Piper say this week that he had no problem speaking to thousands, if not 10,000s of people about Christ. But to open his mouth one-on-one -on -one with a person literally paralyzed him at times. So, you're in good company. As you see on your notes, I want to give you three of my favorite big picture verses on evangelism. Matthew 9, 37 through 38. We look at the big picture here. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That is a verse that shows a picture of a church with a healthy culture of biblical evangelism, that we are living and praying in that way. And then Romans 10 how then will they call on him and who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And then lastly, one of my favorites, for the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That was his purpose. Therefore, it is his, the purpose of his people. So these verses in this big picture forces you and I to wrestle with corporately as a body and individually as people about how the church can be God's strategic plan for evangelism, as it says on your notes there. When we think about the church being God's strategic plan for evangelism, I'm reminded of John 20, 21. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. He's speaking to his disciples then, and he's speaking to us, his disciples now. And, and, and knowing that God's church is this part of his strategic plan for evangelism, here's our response, both, per, both personally and corporately, is to be like Isaiah's in Isaiah 6, where the, it says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who should I send? And I said, Here I am, send me. That is our response personally and as a church. Here I am, send me. Me. So creating this culture of evangelism in a church is so crucial and it's so beneficial to the church. We are trying, if I could describe it this way, to create a mindset where the whole church is to speak of Jesus often wherever they live and work and play. The church is a place where we can hold each other accountable. We can strengthen our resolve. We can learn from each other. We can rejoice together in God's success through us. We can cry and pray for those when people are unresponsive to the gospel. And we can create an intimate bond through our shared experiences. Now, here's what we're not talking about. Creating a culture of evangelism in a church, a healthy culture. We're not talking about an evangelistic program. And as I say that, I'm not saying that evangelistic programs are wrong. 
I'm not saying never use programs or events. Matter of fact, at every family life conference I speak at, I typically get asked to share the gospel message. That's an event. That's a program. And you know what? People come to Christ and that is great. And we celebrate that. But let's say as a church, let's say we decided this coming Easter to do an incredible high level Easter evangelistic production. We spent thousands, if not $10,000 on it. We spent thousands of man hours putting it together. And over the course of a few days that week, we had 75 non-Christians, which would, we would be excited about, attended that event. And five of those 75 placed their trust in Christ. We would absolutely rejoice. But the reality is, on the other side of the argument, and this is where we're, how you create a, a healthy culture of evangelism. We can never fit into this church building all the Christians with whom you are in direct contact with on a weekly or monthly basis, no matter how big this sanctuary or worship place is. Stats prove this. Most people come to Christ through the influence of a family member a small group Bible study, or a conversation with a friend. And most come to Christ under the age of 21. So important to get college students, maybe even international college students in your home. 53% of people come to Christ through a conversation with a friend and only 1% come to Christ through an event or a program or something on TV or media. Now, we do a comparison cost analysis. The comparison between a cup of coffee and a program, we spend thousands of dollars and man hours. Obviously, it's obvious what's more effective. Someone said evangelistic programs are like sugar. It's tasty when addictive. It's tasty even addictive. However, it takes away the desire for more healthy food which I am fully aware of that phenomena. It provides a quick burst of energy, but over time it makes you flabby and a steady diet of it will kill you. Just as sugar can make us feel as if we've eaten well when we have not, programs can often make us feel as if we've done evangelism when we have not. We need to use programs strategically, but in moderation while remembering that God did not send an event. He did not send a program. He sent a person, his own son, the Lord Jesus, to seek and save that which was lost. So that's sort of this philosophy of creating a healthy culture of evangelism in our church. And as we do that, what we have to do, what you have to do, is you have to answer Three very crucial questions that I list there in your notes. Are you motivated? Are you equipped? And are you available? Let's take a minute and look at those three. 
When you think about evangelism and creating this healthy culture, we ask this question, are you motivated? Now, I spent a whole message, and you can go back and watch that online or review your notes about 11 biblical motivations for telling others about Christ. And I would encourage you to go and look at those motivations and see which one or two grab you the most or, or maybe some that you need to be motivated by and you're not. But I want to bring out one very intentionally that I didn't list that morning. And it comes from Revelation 20, 11 through 15. We need to be gripped by this. John, the apostle, writes in Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Now, aren't you and I glad that we are not judged by what we have done because of Christ? The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Folks, that is biblical reality for those who do not know Christ. And at some level, that has to grip us, the reality of that. Everyone does not live eternally with Christ in heaven. So are you motivated? And if not, why? Second question, are you equipped? And maybe a better question is, do you want to be equipped? Will you engage when I show up to your community group and teach you how to share the gospel? Will you take advantage of Bonnie who said last week, let me know how I can help you learn to tell your story. Will you read books on your own, books that have been suggested about evangelism, sharing Christ, having conversations, how to break that ice. Our job is to equip you and your job is to be teachable and coachable. I'm reminded when I think of this question of John 9, Jesus heals this blind man who had been healed, who had been blind from birth. The religious leaders, he told the religious leaders that he had been healed by this man named Jesus. And they didn't believe that he had been blind from birth. So they went to his parents and said, yo, parents, your young man, your son says that he was blind from birth. Is that true? And the parents responded wisely. They said, don't talk to us. He's a grown man. Go ask him. But yes, he's been blind since birth. They go to him and they said, have you been blind since birth? And did this man Jesus heal you? And his response was, all I know is that I was blind, but now I see. He had just come to Christ a few hours before that conversation. And all he did was tell what he knew. He was blind, but now he sees. When I first came to Christ, 
You got to remember the culture of football, heathen, football dorm culture. And all of a sudden, I quit going out with the fellas to, to raise a ruckus and worse. And they would say, man, why don't you go out with us no more, man? You don't want to be with us anymore. What's going on with you? And all I knew to tell them was, I can't. I can't. And they'd say, why? I said, I just gave my life to Christ, man. I can't, I can't go with you anymore. <clears throat> I'm amazed at how many opportunities I got to share Christ just by saying that. And that's all I knew to say. <laughs> I can't go. I can't. And they would say sometimes, they would say sometimes, man, I know Christ too, man. But he, you know, we can still have a little fun. And I'm like, nah, bro, you can't do what we've been doing if you know Christ. And that would give me conversations. Matter of fact, I've been a Christian nine months and I'm home in Selma, North Carolina. I'm working out uh, at the high school. And this friend of mine, Jimmy Baggett, comes in and I had my head shaved. And, and <laughs> I had my head shaved simply because I was recovering from an injury and I sort of did it for just the focus. I don't have to, my hair was lovely and long locks then. And I didn't, I didn't want to have to spend all that time messing with my hair true. So I shaved my head, which I didn't know was going to be a precursor to what I was going to look like for most of my life. But I was working out and he said, Jeff, can I ask you something? The rumor is, man, that you're in some kind of cult. Shaved head, not partying, right? Clean living, like rumors going around is in a cult. I said, I'm not in a cult, but I'd love to tell you what I am in. When we get through working out, come with me to my house. We went to my front porch, and all I did was read the four spiritual laws. I had one in my Bible. I just read the four spiritual laws to him, and Jimmy Baggett's trust Christ on my front porch that day. We walk into my parents, and I tell my parents, <laughs> I had no sense. I walk into my parents, and I say, Mom and Dad, meet Jimmy Baggett. Just gave his life to Christ. And I know they were thinking, oh, gosh, what is going on with my son? Jimmy Baggett, still walking with the Lord of the day, Jimmy Baggett became my largest financial supporter supporting us with Campus Crusade for Christ. He gave us $500 a month for 20 years as a pharmacist in Raleigh. Shocking. Are you equipped? Lastly, are you available? Available is the second of the three most desirable traits in a Christian. Faithful, available, and teachable. To have a healthy culture of evangelism in a church, we must have a church that is full of fat people. <laughs> are you willing? Will you take the risk if God gives you an opportunity? Will you pray to God? And plead with God to give me somebody to tell about Christ. So having said all that, let's look at seven quick things of what does a culture of evangelism actually look like in the church. The first one is a culture that is confident in the gospel. Paul writes in Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We do not want 
to become lukewarm as a church when it comes to the gospel. Our confidence, like Paul's, is in the message of the gospel that God declared powerful. It is a simple message. It is a plain message, but it is packed with power because God has made it alive and God has given it the power to infiltrate the most sinful heart on the face of the earth and bring that heart to repentance and faith and conviction. See, we don't trust in techniques. We don't trust in personalities. We don't trust in entertaining gimmicks. The world laughs at us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians about this gospel message. But we say to one another, we have confidence in this message. When it is shared, it goes out, it does not return void, and the hound of heaven is let loose on those who hear it. So we have confidence in that gospel, not in ourselves. Secondly, a culture that sees people clearly. Paul writes 2 Corinthians 5, 16a. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. How easy it is in our own hearts and minds to adopt the culture of the world and think of people in terms of categories, terms of sex or race or economic status or political ideology. And we so easily forget that those all around us are actual flesh and blood people with real hurts, dreams, and struggles. But now you and I, we've got to put on the lens of Christ. We have to have this gospel view of people to see them as beautiful but flawed, like us. To see them as valuable but foolish at times, like us. To see them as created in the image of God, but stained with indwelling sin, like us. Trying so hard to be connected to somebody and something, but ultimately separated from God, like we were. We must keep in mind that you and I, you and I must keep in mind that these people, these people can become new creations in Christ. I think of Charles Colson. If you don't know who he is, Google him this afternoon. But real quickly, he was Richard Nixon's hatchet man. And he went to prison through the Watergate scandal. He was known as the meanest, most crooked man in Washington, even ahead of Nixon. And in that prison, Somebody gave him, a senator gave him a book called Mere Christianity, and he read it, and he trusted Christ, and that senator began to disciple him. And for the next 40 years of his life, he wrote books and taught and preached and equipped about this person, Christ. Nobody would have ever guessed that Charles Colson would have come to faith in Christ. Thirdly, it is a culture where, evangel where the leadership model evangelism. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The leadership of this church 
is committed to two things. We are committed to equipping you to share Christ wherever you live, work, and play. But we're also committed to doing personally what we are asking and challenging you to do. And when we don't, you can say something to us. We cannot, as leadership, just talk about it and not do it ourselves, to, to stay sharp in the battle, to stay on the front lines, to put ourselves with non-Christians and engage them. And honestly, and I know you may feel different, and this is not right or wrong, it's temperament and background, I am so comfortable around non-Christians. I get a non-Christian. It's can Christians that confuse me sometimes, right? I think of a couple came in our church I don't know, maybe eight years ago now. I may have the time wrong. Jake and Sarah Mayfield. Many of you know them. They work in, the, uh, they serve in our borough faithfully. Someone called me and said, hey, this couple needs some marriage counseling. They weren't even married. They come in my office. They don't know Christ from the man in the moon. I figured that out pretty quick. I don't even know why I said yes. It's like the Lord said, I want you to, I was like, Lord, they don't go here. I ain't got time for this. I don't know what, and he said, I need you to meet with them. So I brought him in. The idea was once or twice. It turned into nearly a year and a half talking about marriage. And four or five times in that year and a half, I just said, you do know we're talking about biblical marriage and you're not going to have the power to live out what we're talking about until you know Christ. And it's obvious that you don't. We have that conversation. And I shared the gospel on at least four occasions with them. And on the fourth occasion, it clicked. And they both trusted Christ in my office, answered all their questions, not all of them, but lots of them, multiple conversations over and over again. And just this past April, they baptized their 10-year-old son. You're talking about exhilarating. You're talking about watching them baptize their son and me sobbing on the front row and being like, what's he crying? Why does he love that kid so much? Because <laughs> I know the story. They didn't know. Fourthly, a culture where people who are sharing their faith are celebrated. Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who would be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel, Paul writes in Philippians 2. I do love how Paul honors and celebrates Timothy for his work in the gospel. And we as a church have been talking about in, in our meetings about doing a better job of this, that we need to celebrate those people to champion evangelistic attempts, just not conversion stories, but when you get a chance to speak, however it turns out, we need to celebrate and champion that. And one of the ways we're going to do that, you're going to see this in the hallway in the next few weeks. Uh, show me that picture there. We're going to have someone build something like this. We're working on it now. And we're going to give you, when you leave today, a ping pong ball. And you're going to carry that ping pong ball around with you. And when you get a chance to engage someone in the gospel, 
whether the conversation is long or short or they come to Christ or you just take that first step of talking to them about Christ, what he has done for you, who he is to you, what he means to you, whatever that attempt looks like, you're going to come to church, you're going to write their name, John or Jim or Sally or Susie, and you're going to drop in that little thing. And we're going to be encouraged as a body. And then we're going to get stories from you. As that's happening, we're going to bring you up in the service and we're going to let you tell those stories. We need to celebrate. That creates a culture at a church that this is normal Christianity, which it is. This isn't super Christianity. This is as normal as breathing when it comes to biblical Christianity. And so we'll have a fun time, I think, celebrating that. And then fifthly, a cultural mission that feels risky and dangerous. Paul writes again in Philippians 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You and I need to figure out what does it look like for me in my context to take some risk for the gospel. Because here's what happens. When we take risks, we become dangerous to a lost world. We want to be known as dangerous men and dangerous women in our context where we live, work, and play. You know, we talk about Paul being in prison. And Paul lived a risky life that, that ended him up, that put him in jail. But what we don't think about, see, this is another way to look at it. This is the biblical way to look at it is this is not risky for Paul. The one it's risky for is the jailer that is chained to him. <laughs> That's what's risky. I loved it a few months ago across the street. Uh, we had a family move in and I went over to meet him. And as I walked in, it was as obvious as night as day. A Muslim family has moved in our cul-de-sac right across the street. It's like the Lord said, I brought them to you, big fella. I thought, all right, here we go. Here we go. Six, a culture that understands that evangelism is a spiritual discipline. A spiritual discipline. From Colossians 5, 4, 5, and 6. Walking wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We know that spiritual disciplines are those things that promote spiritual growth. They are the habits that have been practiced by Christians since biblical times. Things like Bible intake, prayer, worship, service, fasting, solitude, and journaling. And you and I would say, amen. Bring them on. Those are the things that help me grow. But what you don't know is biblically speaking, you may not know that evangelism is actually a spiritual discipline. It is a natural overflow of the Christian life to talk about what the Lord has done for us and what he means to us. This means you and I must discipline ourselves to get into the context of evangelism. What's hard is not sharing the gospel with a person. What's hard is getting to that point where we can break the ice to get into the conversation. 
Like, like, like that's the hard part. And that's one of the things I'm helping community groups uh, with when I do that equipping with you. But if I get, if I can get through the conversation or the ice, I can have the conversation. So we need to discipline ourselves to get to that point. We must think about evangelism whenever we talk with non-believers, wisely making the use of our opportunities to discipline ourselves to be with non-Christians, to invite co-workers to lunch and ask great questions about their lives, to intentionally ask someone to read the book of John with you over the next few months. And out of all the spiritual disciplines that help us grow, is there anything else that you and I have to trust the Lord with more than having an evangelistic conversation with somebody. And anytime we trust the Lord, guess what happens to us? We grow. Evangelism is a spiritual discipline. Then lastly, to have a healthy culture of evangelism in our church is a culture that consistently invites non-Christians into our homes. I gave you an article today about that. Share your house key to win your neighbors. Give you a chance to take it home and read it. Also want to suggest a book we will be using this spring some in our community groups called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing Radical Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World by Rosaria Butterfield. You know why she wrote the book? Because she came to Christ through biblical hospitality. Her as a non-Christian, heathen, uh, professor at Syracuse University and this pastor and wife invited her into her home. Biblical hospitality is not entertainment. Who cares about cat hair? People will die of loneliness before they care about your cat hair on your couch. It's not focused on your house. It is focused on the person you have in your house. Biblical hospitality is fundamentally an act of missional evangelism where you invite the stranger into your home and welcome them as a neighbor, knowing that your neighbor will encounter you and your believing family in such a way, if God allows, that that neighbor becomes a part of the family of God. That you invite them in with no agenda, but kindness, interest in them, Good conversation, food, transparency, laughs, care. Always prayerfully looking for an opportunity to give the hope that is in you, in Christ. Most people, as I've said before, come to Christ over a meal or a cup of coffee after multiple conversations. And then lastly this morning, something very practical. Here are three practical ways for you to break that ice to get into the context of evangelism. Let people know you go to church. Just mention it in passing. See if they take the bait. Where do you go? Why do you go? See if they take the bait. Well, let me tell you. I'd love to tell you. Can, we, can I take you to coffee sometime? Can I take you to lunch? Secondly, let people know you're a Christian and it's important to you. Not belligerently, nothing about them, just that my faith in Christ, like I did at East Carolina, I didn't even know what to do. I just said, I can't do that because Christ means much to me. See if they take the bait. Often they will. 
And then thirdly, ask people how you can pray for them. I'm amazed. Waitresses, people on airplanes, people you know, how can I pray for you? Listen to them, empathize with them, and pray for them. And many times you lay your hand on their shoulder. You don't say, Lord, bring this heathen to Jesus. No, we didn't know. Like, I, I just want to make, Lord Jesus, we come to you now. Thank you for John. I'm so sad he is in this hard situation. And just pray for them with great grace and empathy and watch their hearts open to have a conversation with you. Now, having said all that, I know I've heard rumors. He's coming to our group. He's going to talk about evangelism. Well, I'm not Jeff. He's crazy and he's loud and he's big and he loves that kind of stuff. I just wasn't made for that stuff. So I'm going to bring up the absolute opposite of me, antithetical to me in temperament and style and all that stuff. I'm going to bring up my blessed, sweet, most introverted woman in the history world, my wife, Jenna Bean. Come on up, Jenna Bean. And she's going to tell you, how you doing? She only like being up here. I had to, I had to pay a hundred dollars to get up here. She's going to tell you, it's a beautiful story of how God flipped her heart from I will never do that to doing it. Yes, I'm having a few heart palpitations. <laughs> so um, I grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And when I was in high school, uh, me and some of my friends were at the beach just trying to relax. And some college students came up to us and said, hey, we're having a sand bearing contest down here. You guys want to come? We're like, sure. So we go running down there, and, you know, there's a lot of people gathered around, and they're bearing people. I don't even remember what was happening. But afterwards, this guy said, hey, you know, we're here with Campus Crusade for Christ. You know, we have this booklet, and um, if you'd like to stay around, we'd like to share it with you. And so there was a girl standing next to us, and she said, hey, can I share this with you guys? And I'm like, I said, I'm already a Christian. You know, you don't need to do that. And so we walked away, and I looked at my friends, and I was like, I would never do that. <laughs> like, ugh. Fast forward <laughs> to college, and I had met Jeff, and he went to Campus Crusade, which I had kind of avoided up to that point. Because she knew we were sharing our I knew faith. what they were about. <laughs> Didn't want to do it. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And so um, we were dating, so I started going to Campus Crusade because he went, and really for the first time started hearing about the gospel and why we share the gospel. Like, I had never heard it, and if I had heard it, it hadn't registered to me. And so I, I began to think about it, and then one time we had a conversation, you know, as we were, you know, getting more serious in our relationship, and he said... I'm going on staff with Athletes in Action when I, when I graduate, which that's a branch of Campus Crusade that works with athletes. And if you're married, your spouse has to be on staff too. And I was in my junior year of nursing school. I'm like, well, I'm gonna be a nurse. <laughs> like I didn't do all this to not be a nurse. And I just remember slapping my forehead and laying back and going, what? And which so, means, which means we, we would get married. 
if I didn't choose to go on staff. And so I started praying about it, and I was like, I really, I want to marry this guy. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) But I don't know about this. Well, that semester in school was my psychiatric rotation. I was assigned to an alcoholic rehab facility. And I began to meet with my patients and get to know them. And I remember thinking, you know what? I can go through all of these things that I'm supposed to go through with them. And I can tell them all these things I've learned to tell them. But when they leave, their same heart aches and their same problems are going to be out there for them. And they're going to be right back here because it's all the same. And I remember thinking the only thing that's going to give them hope is Christ. I got to tell them. And so I went to my nursing instructor and I kind of explained that to her. <laughs> and, you know, as it coincidentally is, she was a believer, one of probably the only ones that I knew of on, on the staff. And she said, I'm, okay, you tell him what you're supposed to tell him for school. And then if you want to tell him anything else, that's up to you. And so I began sharing the gospel with these people and their, like just their countenance, like this light of hope began to come from them toward me and my heart connected with them and theirs with me. And I just thought, oh, wow, like this is awesome. I could do this the rest of my life. So there became my answer. I said, yes, I want to go on staff with Athletes in Action too. I I want to do this with you. And so <laughs> what I didn't, so, so when I'm in school, it's kind of like this prearranged, you're stuck with me, I'm stuck with you, I'm going to tell you the gospel. What I didn't take into account was my personality <laughs> was going with me um, on staff with Athletes in Action. And it is hard for me to just go up to people and start conversations. I I really struggle with small talk. I really am shy. I really don't even know what to say sometimes. And so I I tend to pull back and I just want to watch everything. And I'm happy doing that. Um, But what began to happen was the, like I remember one time we went to a pro athletes outreach con, uh, conference and they had an outreach day and immediately my stomach just went, whoa, talking to people, I don't know. <laughs> and we were supposed to go to a rehab facility for teens and I distinctly heard the Lord say, if you don't go, I can't go. And he could, but he chooses us. So I was like, well, I don't want you to not be able to go, and so I'll go. And that, so that's where I would say my heart began to change to say, okay, is this about me or is this about God and his people? Mm-hmm. And so that is what started to overcome my fear. I still get afraid. Like just recently, um, there's a lady that I worked with, and she was leaving, and I knew she was an atheist, and you know, we'd had some conversations, and I was like, this is really probably my last chance to talk to her. And I, and I knew the Lord was telling me to get her this particular book and some tapes for her kids. And, and I was in the bookstore, and I saw the book. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. She's an atheist. What, what's she going to say when I give her this book? Like, oh, is there something else? <laughs> I kept walking around. And the Lord was like, give her that book and get those CDs for her kids. 
And I don't know how long I was in the bookstore, a while. And finally, I just got them. And long story short, um, gave them to her. And, and I've been praying and praying about giving them to her. And what's crazy is we have constant patient load. Go, 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 go. I didn't even know I was going to get to talk to her and give them to her. And there was this lull where patients didn't show up. And we, and I gave them to her, and we ended up having the most amazing conversation. And what, what is, what I was thinking about is when I first started sharing the gospel, I didn't even really understand it. I thought I did, but I just telling people, there's a girl that came to Christ at Clemson. She's still walking with the Lord. All I needed to do was read the four, the four spiritual laws. Now, I can share my story because there's been a story since then because that's really where God began to drill into me the gospel. And so I was just me able to tell her my story. And the crazy thing is her heart connected with it. And she's like, I never thought about that. And so I didn't have to be him. I just shared my story. And I don't know what God's going to do. Um, but I do know that she is now thinking about things that she has never, ever thought about. Um, and so that's kind of me in a nut. I'm Piglet, so God can use Piglet. <laughs> I'm Tigger. <laughs> I'm Tigger. My little introvert evangelist. So y'all stand with us this morning if you would. Let me pray for us, Lord Jesus.